last week and today our theme is simply at the cross that God has done such amazing things there for us that we need to really take a little time and, and pause and understand what it was that God did for us there. Last week we talked about specifically the cross, and today we mentioned to you last week that we're going to trace a master theme that goes all through the scriptures. And so I want to read a passage for us as we begin this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there is one in the rack in the chair in front of you. And our text this morning is on page 886 in that Bible. And it's in John chapter 1, for those of you who brought your own. And I'm going to be reading a few verses selectively from chapter 1 that set the stage for where we're going to be going as we look at this theme that runs all through the scriptures, the Lamb of God and his cross. So let's begin in John chapter 1, verse 1. Read the first few verses and then skip down and, and pick up a few others as we go along. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Down to verse 14. After the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son up from the Father, full of grace and truth. Down to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And then verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, speaking of the word, Christ, has made him known. And then verse 29, John the Baptist is introduced, and he's saying, the next day, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together, and we want to consider this whole theme of of the Lamb and the cross. And who is this Lamb of God, and how are we introduced to him, and what do we know about him? So let's pray together. Father, uh, teach us in a way that only you can. Your word comprehensively offers instruction for us in every conceivable way. And so that which is before us today is to understand the revelation of your plan for folks like us, separated from you by choices that we've made, rebellion, sin, whatever uh, those things are that stack up against us in your eyes and bring your wrath upon us. Father, we thank you that in Christ, our Lamb, Those things have been taken care of once and for all at the cross. So, Lord, may we see and may we understand and may we picture how you have put this together. And you've left no doubt as to what you've been doing from the beginning and all the way through until the end of time and then beyond. We ask you to be our instructor for Christ's sake. Amen. I've always been fascinated by people who have the ability artistically to take a blank anything and make it into a beautiful everything. It's just an amazing thing to be able to see them start off with a piece of paper and they make that first stroke. It may be a pen stroke. It may be a a piece of charcoal or or a a, a slash of of paint of some sort. And you look at it and think, I have no idea where they're going with that. And you you see that that they've got something in mind, but we're not sure what it is. And so the artist has an image in mind. They've got a vision of where it's going. And Kathy and I were a couple of years ago in Italy, and, and that's the land of the master artists. And so we were kind of excited to be some of the, see some of the old masterpieces and, and some of the sculptures, and, and it was going to be a great time. So we, we went, and we didn't really understand how you take a block of marble and end up with something phenomenal. How do you, how do, you do that? I mean, I'm just thinking, okay, carve away everything that doesn't look like David. And then, you know, that's, no, they can't do that. Or everything that looks like 
a rock you get rid of and everything that looks like Mary and Jesus leave there. You know, I'm not sure how they go. So we found something out. In the, in the book of instruction on, uh, for sculptors, they say, well, first of all, you need to be very adept at being able to sketch before you ever pick up a chisel and a hammer. So you need to be able to draw it out. And so that's a, that's a starting point, to be able to draw it out in small pieces and, and kind of put it on a piece of paper and try to look at it from different angles and do that. And then maybe you want to take a model first and, and put that together. So I'm thinking, yeah, but Michelangelo didn't do all that. Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, he did. And so I uh, just saw this this week. There's a picture of, of his first version of the Pieta, which is in uh, St. Peter's uh, Basilica. And, and, and that's the 12-inch clay version of that. I'm thinking, Michelangelo practiced? <laughs> he, I mean, this is his little model. And so he's putting this thing together. And, and I'm thinking, you know, that's pretty good. <clears throat> I'm not bad at all. He could use some help around the facial features. I could have helped him with that a little bit. And, you know, her nose is a little too long and looks like she's got acne. I mean, there's some things there. But, uh, you know, it, it started out okay. But that's the 12-inch version of this thing. Nobody put that in a cathedral. Now, the next picture is the real deal. Out of marble, and it's five and a half times larger than, than that. And I wish you could get close enough to see it. But, I mean, you can see the veins in his hands, the, the fingernails. You can see the strands of every muscle, every bone, everything is just so. Like, how in the world did he get from a sketch to a model to that? It's an amazing thing. And so the process, he didn't start off that way. He, he got there. Now, let's, let's contrast that creation of, of our, our artist, Michelangelo. Let's, let's take that and put it in the back of our minds and think, okay, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't see God in heaven with a sketchbook thinking, oh, no, no. Or, or God with a pencil with an eraser on it does not really make sense to me. Why? He doesn't need that. He, so he just brought things into being, and he says everything that was made, verse 3 in chapter 1, says everything that was made and has been made came through him. And how did he bring it into being? A big carpenter shop in heaven? No. He spoke, and it came into being. So for him, he said, well, he went to all that trouble to create. What trouble? He spoke. And it was. He's God, and he does that. So we, we look at this picture and think, how did God get from, from nothingness out there to all the created things? And then in the middle of all that, he says, I'm going I'm to create man in my image. In our image, let us create him. And so he creates us. And then he begins the process of communicating with us. The heavens declare the glory of God, and, and we see that picture in, in Romans 1, and that's all there. But then he wants to, to unveil something to us. He could just speak it into our minds, because he can speak and all things come into existence. But he chose instead to recognize the frailty of our minds. Our inability to understand things very well. And so the, the process by which God did what he did is that he began by introducing pieces of his plan to us. And he began to, to open it up for us. He had it figured out. But what we want to understand as we look at this today is that the Father has such profound, deep delight and love for us that from before the foundations of the world... 
he had already prepared a way for sinners like us to be forgiven. And he had made that plan through a son that he would send, his only son, Jesus Christ. Before the foundation of the world, he had put that in place. Hmm. How does he communicate that to us? How does he let us in on that? Is that left for conjecture and speculation? Is that, how did he do that? Well, a lot of the world's always trying to come up with uh, an idea how we can explain how someone can get to know the God who created us, and there's all kinds of ideas about that out there. But the bottom line is, is that God had the end in mind before the beginning ever started. So what we want to think about is that, that he had a plan in place before the foundation of the earth. That's what our, our passage begins with the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is God's way of referring to Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We, we saw that glory. And he reveals himself to us in his Son. Then he says to us that, th- that my love for you was so great that before the foundation of the earth, and we'll see more about this un- unfolding, before the foundation of the earth, I had a plan in place for you to be able to know me, to be accepted by me to be made a part of my family, and to live with me forever and ever in a place called heaven. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. We could write a song about that. (laughs) How amazing. His love so great that, that before anything ever actually got started, he already had figured out in his eternal wisdom, he already knew without figuring out, correct myself. He just knew what would be necessary for us to be able to have a relationship with him. So, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and he sent every spiritual blessing to us in his son so that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we could see that and behold that. And God has known always what he was going to do, why he was going to do it, how he was going to do it, when he was going to do it, with whom he was going to do it. He had it all from the beginning. Now, we parents... We get a little cocky if we put aside a little college money before our kids are born, right? We're kind of thinking like, oh, yeah, I'm a good parent. I got a college fund over here. Yeah, in my household when I grew up, my parents had saved money for college. And first semester, my oldest brother, and I've got three brothers, uh, four boys, uh, first semester, it's all gone. I mean, it's done. All those years of saving. So they, they planned, but that didn't necessarily do it. But they loved us all and wanted to provide a way for that to happen. And so we, we love our children. We want to provide for them that way. And we start praying for our children's spouses before we even have children, if we're wise. Be praying, Lord, they're going to need some help up in here. I mean, I know my gene pool. They're going to need some help. I married a good gene pool, but I got mine still here. And so they're going to need some help. Lord, bring them a spouse. And so we're, we're loving our kids before they're even born. 
and praying for him and taking care of him and asking God, would you leave a godly legacy for these kids? And would, would the, our children's children be able to have a godly legacy? And so we're loving our kids and thinking ahead for all that. And we're feeling pretty good about how much we've loved and prepared and done that. And then we read something like this and kind of go, oh, never mind. <laughs> I mean, from before the foundation of the world, God had prepared a way for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to be ours in Christ. He had already prepared it. Before the foundation of the world. Now, now here's, this is a foreign notion to a lot of folks that God had not only known, because some people are willing to concede, okay, well, God foreknew. He knew. Yeah, of course he wouldn't be God if he didn't know. But their idea is that well, he knew, but he didn't really do anything about it yet. The scriptures say, oh, absolutely he did. He knew and he prepared for our salvation before the world even began. Wow, that's mind-boggling. How is that possible? And how, what does that do to free will? And what does that have to do? Just, just, you tell me, is there another way to read that? That's what it says. And so we look at Jesus talking in Matthew 25 and, and teaching his disciples. He says, you know, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And, and if you've done it right, he says, when you come into the presence of the king, in verse 34 of Matthew 25, is the king will say to those on his right, the, the people on the sheep of the right side, he says, you come, who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well, it's from the foundation of the world, Horner. It's not before the foundation of the world. Even still, that's pretty impressive love that the Father has for us to do that and prepares a kingdom for us from the foundation of the world. Well, Hebrews chapter 4 gets back to the world and before it started. He says, we have, as those who believe, entered into a rest. He said, I swore in my rest, you'll, you'll not enter my rest, but you believe in me. He says, therefore, his works, the Messiah's works were finished. Everything that was necessary to be done was done from the foundation of the world. He's already done it. Wait a minute, the cross wasn't going to come until much later. How can he say it was already done? We want to see the end from the beginning. We've got to track where God's saying. Our God, he says, is awesome. Our God is awesome in love. He's awesome in power, in wisdom, and understanding, and preparation, and every conceivable way. Our God is awesome. And so he says, here's my way that has been unveiled for you through the entire narrative of the Scriptures. If this is God's plan for us, we would suspect that if it's so important that he would weave it into the fabric of the entire story of Scripture. Wouldn't you think that? That it would not be something that he just kind of leads us on, leads us on, leads us on, and then in the last chapter he springs it on us. No, it's woven into the entire narrative of the Scriptures. And so some of you got scared last week when I said I'm going to take you through Genesis to Revelation this week. Some of you are going like, dude, you preach a long time anyway. If, <laughs> that's a long sermon if you're going to do all that. Well, we're going to get a little representative here today and figure out how this works. Because as a non-artist, like I said, I'm amazed at when somebody paints an incredibly glorious picture. God's saying, I want to paint you a picture. But you can't see the whole thing yet. And if I showed you the whole thing, you wouldn't understand the intricacies and the meticulous details that went into it. So let me start you somewhere small and let's give you a picture. And I'm going to take this particular theme that is unfolding in my plan for the redemption of a people who are lost apart from me and who would never have access to eternal home with me unless I intervene. And that plan has been prepared before the foundation of the world. And the work that was necessary is finished 
in Christ before the foundation of the earth. From the heart and mind of God, that's an incredibly complicated thing to understand. But let's see if it's true. It may be complicated because it's not true. Well, that's one thing. But the Scriptures affirm, no, this is true. And this is how we want to understand it. And so in in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many different ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So he, he laid things out. He set the table in the prophets and in many portions, in many different ways. And in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And now Let's trace this all the way on through and see what else he has to say because there is this master theme that emerges in the Scripture, and that is that God has prepared a lamb. We're just saying, oh, the blood of the lamb. Oh, the blood of the lamb. What is this lamb, and where did that notion come from, and how do we factor it into these things? So we want to look at about 10 different passages. Not about. We're going to look at 10 different passages as we see the lamb growing in our understanding as God presents more and more of a complete picture for us. Initially, broad strokes. We, we're not sure what, I'm not sure how the lamb relates to me. Or I can't see from that first stroke what, what's coming out of this. How, how am I supposed to understand? He hasn't even gotten to the model yet. So what does this mean to me? And so we're going to look at, from Genesis to Revelation, not in, every, not in every book, not in every chapter, no, but we're going to go look at a random sampling of what God has revealed about his son, the Lamb of God. Now, if you go ahead and turn over to Genesis, you'll be, you'll be in the vicinity of where we're going to start. Now, we'll start in chapter 4, but before I start in chapter 4, I'm going to ask you to consider chapter 3 for just one second before we get there, because in chapter 4, it's Cain and Abel. You've got Cain's the tiller of the, of the earth, and, and Abel is the keeper of the flocks, and, and we'll get to that in a second. But I believe there was a place in chapter 3, that maybe we have an introduction of the theme of the lamb without the lamb being named. Adam and Eve had sinned. They were all of a sudden aware of their nakedness. You remember that part? If you don't remember it, it's in chapter 2 and 3. And as they become aware of their nakedness, they, they put together some valiant but very very skimpy approach to try to cover themselves. And so they, they cover themselves with leaves in their loin area, it says. And then when God comes, it says that God provided a better way to cover themselves. And so they covered themselves by God's provision with what? The skin of an animal. It doesn't say what animal that is. I want to raise my hand and say, I bet I know what kind of animal it was. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. It doesn't say. So don't go to the bank on this Horner uh, swear spot. No, I don't. I, but I, it seems to me that we might see the first appearance of the lamb slain in Genesis 3 instead of 4. But let's just kind of hold that out. And it makes sense, too, because lamb skin is so comfy. Very soft. Very soft. And maybe a little lanolin, you know, for chafing of that. I mean, who knows what it may be. But, but bottom line is that we don't know about that. We get to chapter 4, and we have an appearance of this necessity of why do we need a lamb? Why does the lamb need to be slain? And so point number one is in Genesis 4, there was a need for a lamb. There was the offering made by Cain. There was an offering made by Abel. And, and here's what it says is that Abel was keeper of flocks, Cain tiller of the ground. Uh, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel 
and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. As a kid, when I'm reading that, I'm thinking, well, that stinks. I mean, I got brothers. I would hate it if my brother's offerings were accepted and, and mine was not. I can understand why the guy was ticked. Not enough to kill you, brother. But I mean, I, I can understand why he would be upset. And I didn't understand what was going on with the offerings. The offering brought by Cain would have been what? The, the, it, was, it was grain or, or some kind of fruit product, something, the tiller of the ground. He was bringing some kind of plant life, something of the, of, not of the animal kingdom, but of the plant kingdom. And so, so we, we find Abel bringing something from the flock to sacrifice. His was accepted. Cain's was not. Why? You ever thought about why? Because there needed to be the slaying of a sacrifice to atone for sin. The, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, that we know that the wages, what, what you earn by your sin is a death penalty. And so in order for there to be a sacrifice that atones for that sin, there needs to be the shedding of blood. And so Abel brought that kind of sacrifice. Cain did not bring that kind of sacrifice. And so the need to have a slain lamb starts for us clearly in Genesis chapter 4. Okay, that's the starting point for us. There's the introduction of the slain lamb, Genesis 4. Now, move over to Genesis 22. You've got now Abraham, who was Abram, now is Abraham. He's been given a promise by God that out of you will come a mighty nation. And the, and the people who will be your heirs will be as numerous as the sand on the coast. It is, it's going to be a great thing. But he's got one son. His name is Isaac. And God says to him, I want you to take Isaac up to the mountain where I'm going to show you. And I want you to sacrifice him on the altar to me. Um, God, now, I'm, I'm well over 100 now. Sarah is now as well. We've got this son, uh, your son, given to us, and you want me to slay him on an altar. We don't even have a record of that conversation. Abraham has just learned to trust God, and it's like, yes, Lord. And so we pick it up in, in verse 6 of Genesis 22. It says, the two of them walked on together, Abraham, Abraham and his son Isaac. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and says, Father, yes, here I am, a son. He says, here's, here's the fire, and here's the wood, but, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place in which God had told him, and Abram built the altar there, and he arranged the wood, and then he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. The Lord, he said, will provide a lamb. The Lord provided the Lord took care of that. And he is saying already to us, starting in, in this, the Lord will provide 
what you need. The sacrifice for your sin, the burnt offering of your atoning sacrifice, God will provide a lamb for you. So you, you need a lamb. You need someone to be slain for your sins in, in Genesis 4. Genesis 22, God promises, I will provide for that lamb. Genesis gives us that starting point. Now we move over to Exodus chapter 12. And if you'll remember by this point, they've been in bondage for about 400 some years. Uh, the, the Israelites have just gone through with Moses and Aaron, and there've been nine plagues. And there's a promise now that there's a warning. The angel of death is coming upon all of Egypt. And the firstborn of every household will be slain by the angel of death. Unless, and this is the promise to Moses, to the Israelites, unless you take an unblemished lamb and slay that lamb and then take the blood and collect it and then take the blood that you've collected and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the door. So if you will put that blood there, when the angel of death comes, he will see the blood of the lamb and he will pass over and death will not come upon those who are covered by the blood of a lamb. Wow. That's, that's getting a little more specific, isn't it? And even the, the motion. Before I put the blood, the, even, you, you even get a picture of the cross, even in the putting the blood on the doorpost and the lentil. You, you get the blood, and all who are under the blood of the lamb will not suffer death, but will live as God passes over them. Our redemption, our salvation are not on the model of the goodness of a cute little lamb. It's not on the, the teaching that we get from, from lamb stories. It's about the blood shed by the lamb. That's the basis of our salvation. Uh, the fourth picture we get. Let's move on over to Leviticus. Genesis, sex, Leviticus. No, we're not going to go through numbers all the way there, but here we are in Leviticus. What's the character of this lamb. What kind of lamb will do? Well, according to the one slain for the Exodus and the blood to be put on the doorpost, this can't be just the leftover lambs. This can't be the ones that you've been to the market and you've sold all the good ones and now you've got a couple of lame ones or some blind ones or deformed ones or, or whatever, the scrawny, the run of the litter. And so just, we'll bring those, as, make those a sacrifice. He says, no, no, no. The character of the lamb is that the lamb must be without spot or wrinkle or blemish or anything like that. He's got to be an unblemished lamb. You shall take a male without defect from the cattle the sheep or the goats, he says in Leviticus chapter 22. So he says, if, if you're going to use a lamb for sacrifice for sins, the lamb has got to be pure. The lamb has got to be without blemish or defect. So you, you need the character to be right. And so about 20 different times in the book of Leviticus, it says when you're bringing your offering, your offering to be slain and put on the altar of God, that offering has got to be a pure and holy offering. It's got to be unblemished with no defect. We happen to have an acquaintance with the Lamb of God who was without sin in all things, that had no unrighteousness in him, that was able to go to the cross as one who had no death sentence against him because he didn't have any sin against which a death sentence would have been rendered. A Lamb without defect is how we see the entire New Testament describing our Savior, Jesus. And here in Leviticus, it says you, you can't come with a lamb that's messed up. You, you need one 
holy and undefiled. Then we move over to Isaiah. It's a huge jump. Well, yeah, it's a short worship service. Let's get on over to Isaiah. Here we move from the lamb being it to he. Huge transition. Because now we're starting to talk about the fact that the lamb of God is personal. The lamb of God is actually a person. He stops being referred to as it and starts here being referred to as he. And this messianic prophecy speaks of the coming Messiah, the person who would come to be the savior of the world. And it speaks of him as he, the lamb of God. So in Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he didn't open his mouth. When we see Jesus standing before Pilate and the the chief priest and the high priest and others, and they're hurling accusations at him, and it says he didn't say a word. Isaiah said, the Messiah, when he comes, your lamb won't do that either. He won't say a word silently going to the one who would be slaughtering him and says, this is who the Messiah is. He is your lamb. And upon this lamb, your sin will be placed. It's personal, people. You've heard people say, what I'm getting ready to say to you, I have to say, it's nothing personal. Well, shouldn't it be? Shouldn't this be personal? If we can think of the atonement, if we can think of God's grace to us and the work of the cross as something that's not personal, we don't have it yet. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God chose to become a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. It's very personal. And so he begins to speak of him who would go to the cross, and on him, on that cross, your sin and my sin very personally was placed upon him so that when he died and when the Father turned away from him, Father, please, don't don't turn. I must turn away because you are now the embodiment of the sins of David Horner and all those sitting in that building on Glenwood Avenue in 2015. You, I can't look. And the father turned his face away. Jesus very personally offers us a relationship with the lamb and says, this is for you. This is about you laying your sin on a person. God became flesh dwelling among us. It's upon him. If our faith becomes just a tenet of doctrine that we affirm, I believe that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. That's great. Do you understand that he died for you? And that it's not just a Savior died, a lamb was slain. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, became flesh and blood and lived on this planet. And he loved you and me so much that he died for us. That's why John 3.16 is, is in everybody's mind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why would he say It's personal. Don't let that become just a tag in your statement of faith. Yes, I believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world. No, Jesus 
God's only son who wants you to know him and for you to know his father. He's the one who is your lamb. Very personal. Now, let's recognize who he is. John chapter 1, the passage we read earlier. John the Baptist has been described in chapter 1, and now we see in verse 29 that he sees Jesus coming. He saw Jesus coming toward him. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Disciples are going, what are you, what are you talking about? There he is. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's the Lamb. Look at the Lamb of God, and he identifies him. He says, this is, this is the recognition that this is the Lamb. And so he says in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then verse 36 again, he comes back. He says, look, behold, the Lamb of God. And some of John's disciples stopped following him and started following Jesus, who would be the Lamb for them. And then you get to John chapter 8, and you have... Philip the deacon who's involved in all kinds of evangelism works and stuff and God by the Holy Spirit calls him up out of that sends him to a road south of of the city heading back toward Ethiopia and connects him with an Ethiopian official who's heading back home after being in Jerusalem for time of worship and he's got this scroll of Isaiah in his hands and Philip comes up and says you need any help buddy I can help you with that he says what are you reading he said, well, I don't understand it. He said, well, what, what is it that you're reading? He says, I, I'm reading this passage about he was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent. He doesn't open his mouth. He says, I got this one. <laughs> so it says, beginning with that scripture, he opened his mouth and preached Jesus to him. I love that passage. He just opened his mouth. Let me, okay. John, John said, Behold the Lamb of God. We, we understand that. Let me, let me tell you who Isaiah was talking about here. This is none other than Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. This is the Word incarnate dwelling in my sin. And the, the, the guy trusted Christ, and he sees a pool of water and says, what, What's keeping me from being baptized right now? This is the Lamb of God slain for my sin. Yes, and his name is Jesus. And where you're coming from, that's where it took place, where the Lamb was slain in Jerusalem on a cross for your sin and mine. The blood has been shed. The payment is in full. And all who believe in his name will be forgiven and have everlasting life. Whew. I want some of that, Ethiopian guy says. He says, you can have it. Call on his name and you'll be saved. What a great picture. Now, move to the eighth picture. We've, we've got it in our minds now. The Lamb of God needed to be slain, was slain, described now as a person to be slain. He's identified as Jesus, the Messiah. He's now been uh, called out and said, that, that's him, the one who's in the scripture, the one who's coming toward me. That's who he is, the slain lamb. But what about next? What, what do we know next that's necessary? Not for him to just be slain, for him to be one who is a lamb unblemished, let's get to First Peter now, a lamb who is unblemished, that's, that's Jesus they're talking about here, yes, okay. Then verses 21, verse 21, he says, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The, the character of the lamb has been affirmed, yes, he's unblemished, but if he's unblemished and dead, Slain lambs from Genesis forward have been 
put to death and their bloodshed, and, and that's pointed towards something. This one, who is the Lamb of God, who once for all has paid the penalty with his own blood, once for all time, never needing to be repeated because he was fully God and fully man, this one-time Lamb has been slain, dead and in the grave, and God raised him up. God says, I've accepted his sacrifice. I have received his atonement for your sin. I have adjudicated that which was against you and rendered the judgment on him. And now, if you believe in his name, you will be dead to your sin as he was dead. But because he paid the price and satisfied the judgment, he has been raised to life. And if you put your trust in him, your sin is not only forgiven and behind you, but you are raised to life with him as well. You live forever because of the Lamb of God who was slain and yet lives forever and ever. The picture's getting clearer. And that's where we are now. But the scripture's not done. Flip over to Revelation chapter 5. We get a little more information here. John writes, he says, I looked... I heard the voice of many angels, this is verse 11. I heard the voice of many angels around the throne saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. What? They're gathered around a throne in heaven in Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Who are they talking about? The Lamb of God. The one who is the Lamb who was slain. The one who is the provision of the Father from before the foundations of the earth. His work of atonement in the mind and the heart of God, it was finished already. The the end was done from the beginning. God has provided a lamb for you. Now let's worship the lamb. Let's gather around his throne. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power and praise and on and on and on. He's worthy of all of that. And then one last passage in chapter 21. You could pick up chapter 19. You could go to chapter 22. You can go all over it and you see the lamb still there. But let's just pick this one up. Verse 10, second part of verse 10, chapter 21. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, having the glory of God. And down, he says, and I saw no temple in it. Wait a minute, this is, this is supposed to be a holy place. Where, why, there's, why is there no temple? Uh, I saw the holy place. There was no temple in this holy city. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, they are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the throne of the Lamb. Jesus reigns forever on that throne. 
Everything that is necessary to be done for our eternal salvation has been done by the Lamb of God. He is the only one who goes up to heaven and sits down because it's done. And they cry, worthy is the Lamb. Chapter 5, still coming. Chapter 19, the marriage feast of the Lamb of God to his bride, the church, still coming. Chapter 21, when we all are in that place with every tongue, tribe, people, and nation gathered around and, and we don't need any sunshine because he is the light in the city of heaven. Who is this light? It's the Lamb of God. And so you see, God has painted it in snippets and portraits and, and given us an insight here from, from Genesis 4 and another insight from Genesis 22 and a, a picture snapshot from Exodus 12. And we get over here and you can look in, in Psalm 22 and you could see the description of the cross there. You could go on over as we did to Isaiah 53. You could, you could go all through the scriptures and it just preaches itself. The lamb who was slain for your salvation has come for you. And he wants you to know the father and he wants you to live for him. That is the picture of the story. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we hear ringing in our ears John the Baptist's exhortation, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look! Unto Jesus, consider him who gave all so that you would have all in his name. Come, consider the lamb who was slain for you and understand how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. He would give his son for us. Yes, that's the picture. That's the treasure of this whole thing. God has prepared that way, and he invites each of us to come unto him. Well, what if, what if I've not been chosen? What if I, I don't understand all that election? I don't understand all that stuff. If you've heard and you can respond, come and respond, and don't worry about whether you is or you ain't. <laughs> you just come at the invitation of John the Baptist, if that's the starting point. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and watch what the Lamb of God will do when you bring your sin to him. He will take it away, and you will be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb of God. And you will be made ready for the place that is still to be embraced by every blood-bought child of the King of glory. That's for you. You want to pray or not? I think it's time. Father, do in us what we need done so that Christ in his magnificence will reveal to us what happened at the cross that had been established from all eternity would be necessary for us to be able to get it and grasp and hold tight to the sweetness of our salvation in the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for his revelation as lamb to us that is not just a sweet little fairy tale picture, but it is a sometimes gruesome portrayal of what happens to sinners. And yet what can be ours has been revealed through the resurrected lamb and the glorified lamb and offered to us as life everlasting for those who would trust in his name. So, Lord, stir our hearts to behold this lamb and to come and embrace him by faith and live for his glory. We praise you for that in his name. Amen.